You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Dr. Robert Waldinger, co-author of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. It's a study of adult lifespan development. And when it was started in 1938, it was actually radical to study normal development for two reasons. One is that most of what had been studied was about what goes wrong in development, which we still do because we want to try to help people who are having developmental problems. Well, trauma is really complex. And what we know is that some people react to it, as you say, by burying it, by just not discussing it and moving on. Some people talk about it a great deal. Some people only remember it after many years. They've completely pushed the traumatic events out of memory. So as with so many things in adult development, one size does not fit all. What we do know, and I think about this more from my psychiatry hat, I'm a clinical psychiatrist, and we know that many people who have, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder, get great benefit from talking about the trauma in a safe place where they can process it, where they can put it into perspective. So there certainly is a case to be made for many people that facing toward traumatic events can help heal. Even though the natural instinct of many of those people from the World War II generation was to do just the opposite, to bury it. You don't overcome it ever completely. We're all the product of all of our experiences. So it's really a matter of finding paths, finding ways to make things better rather than making past experiences disappear, right? Past traumas don't ever go away. And in some ways, we know that past traumas can be a source of growth and strength. So it's really a question of how do we help people? You know, so all the people who are being traumatized now in the many wars going on around the world, I mean, this is such a terrible legacy in terms of how much damage is being done and how much healing would need to be done to put people on track for reasonable lives. And it's one of the reasons why trauma is so devastating for children, because it gives children the sense that the world isn't safe, people can't be relied on, and they carry that with them all the way into adulthood. So there's no simple answer. And what we really want to do is minimize trauma as much as we can around the world. And that's where everything that's going on now is heartbreaking. When we think about how many people in the world, children and adults, are being indelibly scarred by what's happening to them. There are some people who thrive and can find happiness even in terrible situations. Other people find life to be miserable and feel themselves to be victims, even in situations that many of us would see as privileged. So there's a huge spectrum in terms of the perspective one has on your own life and your own circumstances. And just means that there's tremendous variation in the effects of trauma. There's tremendous variation in the effects of healthy developmental circumstances. Some people develop in wonderful situations and they still have terrible lives. They become drug addicted. They become criminals. There's so many, there's so much variation in the life paths that we take because the influences on us, both biological and social, are so great and so varied. That's what studying all these lives teaches us. You really outline in your study and in your book the importance of these long relationships, these deep relationships. What did they give us? Well, these are the relationships that help us feel really known and seen. To live through many years of life with another person means that you share a whole set of experiences, a whole set of history 
that you share with very few people on the planet. Yeah, to have the, the proof that one was here and it's not the material possessions. And it would actually be very fascinating to see, I mean, this was your study is conducted in America, but to see then how happiness has this genetic components so of different cultures. I imagine like even indigenous communities where the sense of community is stronger and life is kind of lived more in public, where you could have this natural promotion of happiness and how that's changed with our industrialized societies and modern societies. And what are your reflections on that and how we really it's like a habit of happiness and how we receive that from our families, from our friends and our communities. Well, one of the big differences I've noticed talking with people from more communally oriented cultures is that our culture has a strong emphasis on the individual, on individual happiness, on individual achievement, on individual self-expression. And there are other cultures where the community, the family, and the neighborhood where you live are paramount. And the well-being of others is the first thing you think about. The most exemplary instance of that is in Bhutan. I visited Bhutan where they can't even propose a law for the legislature to consider in Bhutan unless they have a full section describing the effect on the community of any given law, the effect on the well-being of the whole population. So nothing is about the individual. It's all about the collective. And they will say to us quite clearly, your generation messed everything up. And now we're left with the devastating consequences. Yeah, they're angry. It's very difficult. How do you get human beings to invest in something that pays off 20 years down the road or 50 years down the road? And that's the difficulty. It's not clear that we as humans are capable of really tackling a problem that requires so much long-term thinking. You know, politicians want results within the same fiscal year, right? And so what do we do with things like climate change or investing in early childhood development? Again, the payoffs are enormous, but they happen 20 years down the line. So I think that the, my advice to all of us is set up structures that are going to last and support these long-term goals. So not just one government that, that commits itself to slowing climate change, like the current U.S. government, structure organizations where that won't change over 20, 30, 50 years. Right? How could we do that? Because otherwise, we're just going to have alternating governments with alternating sets of priorities and an inadequate response to these bigger, longer-term problems. One of the clearest things is that studying these lives, we know that every life has hardship. Every life has sorrow. Nobody's happy all the time. Doesn't matter how privileged you are, how rich, how famous, nobody's happy all the time. And that's important to name because we can sometimes give each other the mistaken impression that if you just do all the right things, you'll be happy. You know, So if you look at somebody else's social media feeds, they're not posting their photos of when they feel miserable or hungover. They're posting their photos of when they've been at a good party or on a beautiful beach. And so we can give each other the impression that everybody else is living their best life and they're happy all the time. And it's just me who has ups and downs. And what we find, and this is what we put in the book through these life stories, we put in life stories, not of happy endings, but of real stories of ups and downs and challenges and joys as well. 
every study that follows people over time has to deal with that interesting issue of the historical cohort effect. So our original participants were children during the Great Depression and the Harvard undergraduate group served in World War II. And all of these were important shapers of life that are different from the big global events shaping the people growing up now. And so we always have to take that into account when we study any group. What are the influences that are very particular to that historical period? And what are influences and developmental processes that are common to all of us, no matter when we grow up? Having information can be frightening to other people. There are people who suspect information. There are people who have great suspicion of science and academia and education. So there are all kinds of ways to be in the world. And there are all kinds of things that people value. Some of our participants didn't value information that much. They valued other things. And I think we don't really understand the effects of the digital revolution on human development, although there's good research now and we're beginning to find out more. But information in and of itself doesn't seem to predict whether you're going to be happy or less happy. Certainly, the natural world has wonderful benefits. First of all, we are part of the natural world. We often think of ourselves as not being, as being in the world, as opposed to being the world. I'm just what the world is doing right here, right now in this little corner. I'm not separate from the world. And it's that thinking about us as humans as being separate from the world that's gotten us into so much trouble. So yes, absolutely. Being in nature often reminds us, oh my gosh, I'm part of this enormous, magnificent whole. And that can inspire more activity to save the planet. And But in addition, I'm a Zen practitioner and you can appreciate what's here right now, any, including in a concrete jungle. You can find amazing things to discover in a concrete sidewalk if you just stop and look. So there are a lot of ways that we can take ourselves off of automatic pilot, which we're on a lot of the time or mine, and really come into presence. Certainly in nature, it's wonderfully beneficial, but even when we're not out in a beautiful setting, we can do that. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.